invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, where we pick up in this marvelous study looking at the example of Abraham's faith, particularly looking at verses 17 through 22 this morning, this second look at Abraham's faithful example. We oftentimes look around and ask, what does great faith look like? What would even saving faith look like? What's the kind of faith that a believer walks in? And we see that example here in Abraham. It's what Paul says at the end of verse 16, saying there, but also to those, notice, who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham's faith is no different than our faith. Abraham walks as a good example for us and how what biblical saving faith looks like. For some, faith is the belief that some cosmic power is going to do something good in their life. So they have a kind of faith in faith. For others, faith is believing good things are going to happen. They have a faith in positivity. Still others have a faith that is a profession of certain doctrines. They have a faith in creed. And we recognize that biblical faith, saving faith, certainly is bigger than us. And, and it is, uh, as a in result, going to be uh, dependent upon the promises of God. So we know good things are going to come. And we know that... Faith is going to be anchored in truth, but there's still so much more to a robust saving faith. And that's what we see in this example, the characteristics of of Abraham's faith, a kind of faith, as we will see, that God approves. Abraham was highly praised for the example of faith and righteousness. And Paul has been spending a whole chapter here demonstrating that. So we've noted that this is Paul's exposition of Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. And we see the example here in verses 17 through 22. The first example we saw is this last week, that Abraham is a model example because he responded to the command of God And he believed that God is powerful and able to do all that he said. Abraham walked in faith. And he walked in the kind of faith that believed God was able to give life and God was able to create out of nothing. And he lived this life in the presence of God. It's Abraham. Abraham modeled this example And in verse 17, it's that phrase, in the presence of him whom he believed. Abraham walked in the presence of him whom he believed. Literally, uh, it reads this, that Abraham lived opposite of the God he believed. So that you had God, and standing in God's presence was Abraham. He was living in the very presence of God. So the example, the first example of faith is one who lives regularly in light of God. You're living under God's watchful eye. When Abraham left Haran to go to a land which God would show, he left knowing God was watching the whole thing. 
when he took Isaac and he was offering up Isaac and Isaac was bound and he was lifting his knife in the air, he was operating as God was watching every detail. God was always observing. Abraham lived a life under the watchful gaze of God. He wasn't living as a practical atheist, as if God did not exist. He lived in belief. God was watching everything. God watched his response when God came. And as we noted back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, God came and gave the injunction, called him to leave his father's land. He immediately got up and he left. He lived in a way where God was observing. This is the kind of faith that God blesses, the kind of faith where one is constantly living in the presence, or as our text says, in the sight of him, or the presence of him whom he believed. And that is the question for you as you begin to evaluate yourself. Do you live as if your life is always before God's gaze? The God who sees your actions, the God who knows your thoughts from afar, the God who observes your inward life and your outward life, do you live under the constant awareness that God observes all? He doesn't just observe your life on Sunday morning, but he observes your life throughout the week. In those private moments, your life is as equally observed as in those public moments. He is always watching And in the midst of that, you're living under the awareness of God. That's the first expression of Abraham's faith. The second we saw in verse 18 was this, that what Abraham, what made Abraham's faith great is that he lived and believed against all odds. Abraham believed against all earthly odds. This is what made his faith great, that even in the midst of the difficulties of the circumstances, he was believing. That's what the text indicates there. In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. He didn't lose hope in the midst of the difficulties. He didn't lose hope in light of the human limitations. He faced those impossible odds and he continued to believe. He was anchored in God. Verse 19 indicates the difficulty of that when he says there, again, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body uh, now as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He continued to evaluate his life in light of God, and he believed despite the impossible odds. I love again verse 19 because it adds to it and, and compounds it. He, you know, he viewed himself as good as dead, and he viewed the deadness of Sarah's womb. He saw the difficulty of those circumstances, and yet he continued to believe. The human limitations, the human struggles, the human difficulties did not limit his faith. Yeah, it was impossible for man. Yeah, it was difficult. Yeah, it couldn't be accomplished. But for God, nothing was impossible. Why? Because the second aspect, he was trusting in God's power, but the second aspect to this is that he believed in the promises. 
Notice how Paul anchors that in verse 17 and 18. He bookends it uh, with the promises. Verse 17, as it is written, he is a father of many nations, have I made you. And then in verse 18, so shall your dependents be. Paul just keeps bringing out the promises and never putting them before us. So that there was a sense then that Abraham believed the promises of God despite the impossibility of the circumstances. And that's significant. Abraham wasn't just believing in great things for himself that came out of nothing. He didn't imagine like one day he woke up and decided, you know what, today I think from here on out I'm going to be a great person and have a big name and everybody's going to remember me. And he had this grand thoughts about his greatness, and that motivated him. Okay, God, make me great. No, he wasn't testing God. He was anchored in the promises of God. Oftentimes, we get into difficulties and trials in our faith because we have grandiose ideas that God himself hasn't promised. Kind of put it in the vernacular we write checks of faith that God isn't going to cash. Let me show you how this works. Satan did this to Christ. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. Just let me show you the trial of Christ, the temptations of Christ, actually. The temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4. Because we see this very attempt. We see in Matthew chapter 4, Satan attempting to convince the Son of God, to put God to the test. And he uses the Scriptures to twist it. There are three temptations in Matthew chapter 4. The first temptation, Satan came and asked Christ to turn stones into bread. And Christ quotes Deuteronomy and says in, chapter, in verse 4 there, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Christ goes to the Scriptures and refutes the temptation with the Scriptures. So Satan ups it here in verses 5 through 7. And in 5 through 7, he too can twist, he too can use the Scriptures, but here he twists the Scriptures. Notice what is said here, verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So here is the temptation. Scriptures say that the angels will protect the Son of God. The Scriptures say that the angels will not let his foot strike a stone, that you will be preserved. So here you go, Christ. Here we'll take him to the highest pinnacle. And in that particular place, being on the highest pinnacle would be on a cliff edge. This would have been a deep dive off here, saying, jump off, and the angels of God are going to swoop in and protect you. After all, it's what the scriptures say. He will give command of his angels concerning you. To which Jesus responded in verse 7. Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You don't test God here. We don't put our God to the test. He hasn't promised to deal with our foolishness and to protect us from our own foolishness. Yes, he will protect us, but it's not protecting us from our own unbelief and our own error. That's where, again, Christ, knowing the Scriptures, reminded uh, Satan of the contradiction. You shall not put the Lord our God to the test. Same idea is back here in, in Romans chapter 4. Turn back to Romans 4. Abraham here wasn't testing God in his beliefs. He didn't have these promises that he made up and then forced God to answer those promises. He was resting in the very promises that God himself had given him. The idea is here that he was resting in these promises despite the human limitations, not giving in his own ideas. We do this all the time. Man does this all the time, testing God. Testing God and expecting God to respond. You've heard it like this. Somebody says something like, well, God, if you're real, if you're out there, speak to me. Or if you're really out there, God, appear right here in front of us all and then we will believe. See, that isn't faith at that moment. That is unbelief. And after all, if you wanted God to speak, he has already said that the creation is declaring his handiwork. Day by day, pours forth speech. See, the reality is God is demonstrating himself around. Abraham's faith wasn't that. Abraham's faith was anchored in the very promises of God, as indicated again, 17 and 18, here God had stated it. And when we worked our way through this section, we went back to Genesis chapter 12. We saw from Genesis 12, 18, 24, 28, that God had stated in those, reiterating the promise. I will make you the father of many nations. And even after Abraham had died, he reiterated it to the next generation, so as to show the next generation, I will continue to fulfill what I had promised to Abraham. It's God's promises. It's God's testimony that is anchored and believed upon. Not some imagined thing that he had come up with. Not some fancy desire of his heart. Not some grandiose expectation to make himself great. This was God's promises. Oftentimes our faith grows weak because we expect great things from God that he hasn't promised to do. Want him to deliver us from trials in our timeline. Not recognizing that we, his plan is to take us through the trials, to help us bear up under the trials. We want to get around the trial or out of the trial so that we struggle in faith because our expectations are different than what God had promised. We want God to take away the pain and suffering of difficulties. We want God to take away the fears and insecurities so that we remain strong. We, want, uh, we don't want any demonstration of weakness. We want it easy to resist temptation. And with these expectations, we expect that God would do these things. And when it's difficult and hard and the temptations are a war, we struggle in our faith. Because we 
aren't anchored in God's promises. We are seeing the impossibility of the circumstances and are struggling with the difficulties. Listen, God promises to save, but he doesn't promise to save without suffering. I mean, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, we're warned by Jesus that blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's no promise that there won't be suffering in life. Or we recognize this, that God promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. But it doesn't mean we don't have to strive in our spiritual life. It doesn't mean that we won't have times where we feel distant from the Lord because of sin within us or our own rebellion. We, again, strive, but he'll never leave us or forsake us. Or the scriptures say regularly that God will care for all of our needs. Hebrews chapter 13, Matthew chapter 6 tells us that God cares for us and he will care for our physical needs. Because as he says in Matthew six twenty-five. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And then Jesus goes on to say, and your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. God promises to care for our needs. He promises to provide what we need in that moment. But that doesn't mean that we're going to have the same meal every time or that we would have every meal. It certainly doesn't mean that we won't have to work, but it does mean that God is faithful and he will fulfill his promises. So in our case then, Second example, Abraham's faith is that it was anchored in the promises of God and it It believed against all earthly odds. Even when all the earthly circumstances were opposed against it, he remained steadily believing. This led us to the third characteristic of faith then, in verse 19, that Abraham is the model of faith because he embraced the apparent impossibility of fulfillment without wavering. So he says in verse 19, without becoming weak in faith, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He didn't grow weak in that. He analyzed the earthly situation from his, inv- his vantage point. Yes, it was impossible, but he was not wavering. He wasn't weak in this faith. He continued to persevere in confidence. Yes, it looked impossible from the earthly vantage point. looked impossible, but from God's from the vantage point of looking at God and his character, nothing was impossible for him. For he knew, as the end of verse 17 says, that it is God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So now we have two final concluding demonstrations of faith. The next is this. Abraham is the model of faith as he persevered in embracing God's promise. His model of faith persevered. He continued on. Notice verse 20 and 21. It says, Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith 
giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. This was a faith that persevered. Faith that, again, was unwavering. And there are here four qualities to this that I want to draw out. It was a steady faith, a growing faith, a responsive faith, and an unshakable faith. It's drawn out of these two verses here. A steady faith. Notice the steadiness of this faith. Paul brings it out here. And he starts again, verse 20, the key is the starting point, with respect to the promise of God. This is what was on Abraham's mind, the promise of God. In respect to that promise, he says, he did not waver in unbelief. He did not waver. He focused on these promises. The very promises, again, that that Paul just keeps throwing out to us over and over again. Verse 17 and 18, he is going to be the father, or his descendants will be many. He's the father of many nations. What's interesting is that phrase there in verse 20, he did not waver. The word waver there means to judge, to discriminate, or doubt. He did not judge, he did not discriminate, or he did not doubt, and it's the modifying phrase that comes after that, in unbelief. He didn't measure his circumstances in unbelief, is what Paul is saying here. He didn't filter the difficulties of what he was facing through the lens of unbelief. That's the fascinating idea in this. He was walking around operating in lenses of faith, not unbelief. He didn't doubt God's power. He didn't doubt God's ability. He didn't doubt the circumstances, the situations, and God's ability to accomplish it. He was unwavering. He was without doubt. He, he was without judgment of the circumstances and unbelief. He was walking in kind of faith that believed God in the midst of the difficulty. This is what made his faith able to persevere. It's what made it steady. He wasn't, again, what what throws us off in circumstances and difficulties is we begin to evaluate them in unbelief. Let me illustrate how this would work. Married, if you're married and you have a spouse who professes faith in Christ as you profess faith in Christ and you're enjoying life together, that is in all marriages at times. There are difficulties and you hit those rough patches. And this thought comes to your mind. God is never going to change this person. There's just no way this person's going to change. They're always going to be this way. I'm going to face this for the rest of my life. And I'm going to suffer under their immaturity for long as I live. Well, with that attitude, yes, you're right, I think. The point is, though, if they are a child of God, they have the power of God within them to overcome, and they have the grace of God to transform them, and they have the resources from God to be transformed because they have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. 
But we live in a moment of unbelief in those situations where we begin to doubt the promises of God. We begin to doubt the work of conversion in the heart. We begin to doubt the power of the Word of God and the Spirit of God in the work of sanctification. And we live in a moment of doubting and unbelief, thinking, oh, this is just going to be forever. Same thing happens in when we struggle with besetting sins, whatever those besetting sins may be. If we're trying to war against those besetting sins and they continue to dominate and rule in our life, we begin to doubt the promises of God that we are new creatures in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Or Galatians 5.16 Live by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. We begin to doubt the promises of God because we see the besetting sin before us. We begin to doubt and unbelief. The kind of strong faith, the kind of persevering faith that... Abraham demonstrated was a faith that did not view life through the lens of unbelief. It wasn't wavering in unbelief. It wasn't doubting. It wasn't tossed here and there. It was anchored in truth, a steadiness in truth, a regular confidence in the truth. Whatever we face, whatever the challenges are, we ought to be facing in this particular way. We are not doubting God and his character or God and his purposes in the midst of this. Because that is for certain who God is and what he has promised. That is for certain. There's a steadiness there. And this is what, what uh, Paul indicates in the faith of Abraham. He didn't waver. He didn't begin to allow the fears in his heart to rule. He didn't begin to allow the idols in his heart to rule, the uncontrolled and unbridled passions to rule over the promises of God or the character of God. He continued to anchor himself unwaveringly in faith. It's a steadiness. But there's more to it. The second part of this is that he had this kind of steady, unwavering faith because it was a growing faith. Notice what the text indicates there, the second half, but grew strong in faith. It was a growing faith. It wasn't just a a faith that was one-time action, but this was a growing faith. One that got stronger. And the idea there of strength, that he was growing in strength, he grew strong in faith, means that he was getting stronger in it. This word is used many times in the New Testament. Just a couple of examples. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me. Or 2 Timothy 2.1, you therefore my son be strong in the grace. The word strength and strong is this exact same word used in each case and it means to gain might. Here, back in our text, Romans 4, in verse 20, he but grew strong in faith. There is the sense that he is becoming stronger. Listen, we tend to think this. We tend to think, I peaked at conversion and I'm just kind of drifting downhill. If only I can get back to the day I first believed and then I could be strong. We tend to think that way. Particularly when we have been in a persistent season of falling short 
that we lose hope and we think, I just got to get back to that day. Well, certainly we want to ex- exercise the kind of saving faith and we're excited about those seasons where our faith was strong. But here's the idea we need to have in our mind. I will, we are growing and becoming stronger in faith. And there should be a sense in which we are growing stronger in faith because there are ways in which God is ministering to us to make us stronger. I mean, consider it. I know this. I know a whole lot more now than I did when I was first saved. Because I studied more and listened to more sermons and spent more time talking to people and engaged in reading. So I'm growing in knowledge and understanding. Plus, we learn in experience. There is certainly a book knowledge, but there is also something to say about a practical experiential knowledge. That you've walked with God. You have seen God's faithfulness in every season. You know him to be a provider, and then you have experienced him as providing. That grows our faith. That strengthens us. Yes, we learn his promises as we spend time studying his word. And the more of the promises we learn, the more our faith grows. And as we walk in those promises, the more we walk in those promises, the more our faith grows. And the more we become experientially convinced that all of that is true, the more we move into maturity. By the way, that's 1 John 2. Little children, young men, fathers. The progression in in maturity is the progression in an experiential understanding and practice of the faith. Here it says of Abraham, he had a growing faith. He was growing strong. We're not living in yesterday's glories. We are renewing ourselves regularly to exercise an unwavering faith. I mean, how many times do you feel like this? You head into a trial and you think, haven't I done this already? I mean, it's like the older you get and the more you've been through trials, you're like, again? I mean, haven't we mastered this one? And yet the Lord just keeps bringing that back. And it's for this very purpose right here, I believe. So for for the exercise of faith, for the growing stronger, for the maturing work of faith that takes place. Because we have a faith that is, again, not judging the circumstances through the lens of unbelief. And we have a faith that is growing stronger. Leads us to the third quality of faith. It was a responsive faith. Notice what he, he said there. Giving Glory to God. It was a responsive faith, a faith that gave glory to God. I think about this in in our circumstances. Abraham responded in such a way that no matter what was coming upon him, there was the opportunity to praise God and to worship God. It was a life filled, a faith filled with opportunity for praise and thanksgiving. And it's in the midst of praising God and giving thanksgiving that we are reminded of his character and his nature. Uh, Turn back again to uh, Matthew 6 and just show you this. In in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches or gives you know, instruction on the Lord's Prayer. Luke says that he, his disciples had asked him, Lord, teach us how to pray, and he gave the Lord's Prayer. 
But here in Matthew 6, it's instruction on how to pray. And in Matthew 6, in verse 9, notice verse 9 and 10, when our Lord says, Pray then in this way. Notice what he does. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that? That is praise and adoration to God. God, you're the heavenly one, the one who's dwelling above, and you're the sovereign one accomplishing your will, and it's your will be done, not our will be done. It is a reminder in this of our proper place in light of God. It's praise and thanksgiving, and this is how Jesus starts in teaching us how to pray. Our prayers are to be anchored in this kind of praise and adoration. And then in light of that, as he goes on, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Everything that comes in the rest of our life is under that example of praise and worship to God. A life filled uh, uh, with faith is a life filled with praise and adoration to God. It fills our prayer life. It should fill our whole life. Turn back to Romans chapter 4. This is responsive faith of Abraham. He was giving glory to God. Even if, again, it was difficult. I mean, let's, let's be honest. We tend to evaluate the character of God by our own trials. And we tend to limit our praise and adoration to God based on how well those trials are going. If we're suffering for a little too long, God must not be as loving as he ought to be. Or if we're having to wait, God must not really care. So that we start to measure God by how we feel to in our particular trial and difficulty. Instead of recognizing, no, this is an opportunity for me to give glory to God. The first sign of difficulty, the first sign of trial, the first sign of faith is being exercised and pressed. This is the opportunity for me to be responsive and give glory to God. Let's praise Him. Praise him in a difficulty, just as we praise him when things are going well. Paul praised God while he was imprisoned, after he was beaten. Daniel praising God in the lion's den. Disciples praising God in the midst of a storm. It is Abraham's example of faith that persevered in praising God, responding in faith to the circumstances by giving glory to God as he is well-deserving. And as our Lord taught us, that's how we begin in prayer. Praise and adoration to the greatness of God. So Abraham's faith was not judging the circumstances through the lens of unbelief. Abraham's faith was growing stronger. Abraham's faith was responsive. And lastly, in this, it was unshakable. Verse 21, it was unshakable. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. It was unshakable. There's no way it was going to be uh, taken off track. 
He was fully assured. He had conviction. He was certain. There was no doubt whatsoever in his mind. That's the idea here. And this could not have been easy for Abraham at all. As I said last week, you know, it's not like the promise came to Abraham when he was 18 years old. You know, and he had to wait to his mid-40s. You know, now he's in his mid-40s suffering, wondering what was going to happen. No, the promise came to Abraham when Abraham was 75 years old, and it wasn't until nearly 100 years old that it was fulfilled. It was in the later half of his life that each one of those years had to be difficult years for him. It must have felt like dog years for him. 25 years felt like 150 years for him in each one of the years. And yet, it says, he was fully convinced. All right, again, it's a little easier to be fully convinced at the age of 20 than at the age of 80 that God was going to make an heir. But that's exactly what Paul indicates here as he describes the faith of Abraham. He was fully convinced in what? What God had promised. And that was the key. God said it. God is on trial here, not me, not my beliefs. God is, and God said it, and God is going to deliver. Two things that anchored Abraham in this. He knew exactly what God had promised. There was no doubt about it. God had stated it over and over again, so there was no doubt whatsoever what was going to happen. And so there is a confidence that comes in that. What God has said is unalterable. By the way, that's why we spend so much time working through the scriptures, because God has said it, and it is unalterable. It is forever preserved in heaven. It is for us certain, unchangeable. He promised it. But then the second aspect to it, he was fully assured because God was able, as the text indicates. Again, he he knew what God was able to do. He knew God's power. He knew it. God's not lacking in power. God is not like us. You know, it's not like when my kids come to me and ask me for something and I kind of brush them off, you know, and then pretend to forget. They're not here this hour, so I, I could tell you the secret, but I won't tell them. Or I can just kind of get that dad amnesia. I don't quite remember saying that to you. Not like that with God. God is not lacking in understanding. He's not lacking in power. He certainly doesn't get tired in the performance of his good work. He isn't drained in energy. He, needs to, he doesn't need to get enough rest so that he'll be able to perform what he's going to do. He is more than capable and able, and he will do all that he says he will do. God makes perfect first decisions. God operates with unmatched power and knowledge. He has no equals, is limited by nothing, and when he says, I will do this, he does it. He demonstrates the riches of his wisdom and power. And then, as if to show off a little bit, he says, he will even tell you, us, through his prophets, exactly what he's going to do generations before, he happen, before it happens, so as to demonstrate to us, he is God and there is no other. Read the book of Isaiah, and you see that. God says he will accomplish his perfect will. And that's what is stated here. 
For Abraham, he was fully assured that God, what God had promised, he was also able to perform. He was going to do it. He was more than capable. So this wasn't a fluctuating faith. This is what made his faith steady season after season. Unwavering, it was steady, it was growing, it was, in res- it was responsive, and it was unshakable. So what made his faith then persistent and persevering, not wavering, not faltering in the time of need. And so when we find ourselves in those moments of weakness, it could probably trace back to one of these areas that we're viewing through the lens of unbelief or or we're not growing in this faith that we've kind of grown confident in our past successes and we're not pressing into the new areas that God is stretching us or or we're not responsive in praise and adoration or we're just uh, doubting in the midst of it. So we need to do the assessment if we're growing weak in those moments. Because we want to grow strong. Leads us to the last quality that is brought out here. Abraham is a model of faith because of God's affirmation. That's why I love verse 22. Once again, therefore, Paul says, it was also credited to him as righteousness. God affirmed. This whole chapter starts with and ends with Same quote of Genesis 15. Back in Romans 4, 3, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Here, it was also credited to him as righteousness. God affirmed him. It's God's affirmation. God is the one that is measuring Abraham. God is the one watching Abraham. God is the one, again, as we saw that word, logizomai, God is the one doing the reckoning. He reckoned this kind of faith. He declared this kind of faith as righteous. He measured the faith. See, I, you know, I don't measure your faith. You don't live before me. You don't live before our pastors, our elders. You live before God. It's God you give an account to. It's God who measures you. And God is that impartial judge. This is the joy of this, that we seek to operate in the kind of faith that God affirms. So we're going to see later, it's nothing we produce within ourselves. God works in us. Chapters 5, 6, and following, we'll see this. But for now, what we simply look at is this is what we measure ourselves against. Do we live in light of God's evaluation? Looking for God's testimony, God's crediting. And we get the tendency to think something like this. We measure one another. If we can all get together collectively and we can all figure out a right standard and that will be the standard that God is pleased by. And that's going to fail miserably. It's God who sets the standard. God who does the work and produces. So it is God who's doing the reckoning so that we want to then measure ourselves. Do I measure up with what God produces? If not, then I need to turn back to God. Your life's not measuring up. It's going back to God. Remember the promises, 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all our transgressions. 
Too often if we start to operate and move away from God's example and God's design, we'll find ourselves falling away. And it's in those moments we need to go back. Here's what saving faith is. It turns to God and looks for God's approval. Not man's approval. Not the pastor's approval or your fellow Christian's approval, those who are sitting around you. But God's approval alone is what matters to us. He's the one crediting. And the result of that, we see in verse 23 through 25, which we'll unpack next week, but the result is this. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This was affirmed for us. So we live, we operate in this practice of faith ever before God because he is the one whose watchful gaze we're most concerned about. Not one another's. I mean, again, your pastors and elders are here to direct you to God, to the way of God, to direct you to the truth. And as Paul has been making clear in chapter 4, he will ultimately demonstrate again later in chapter 7, the law cannot save at all. It has no power to save. Abraham was not trusting in the law. In fact, Abraham was credited as righteous even before the law was given to him. Even before the sign of the law was given to him, circumcision, he was already reckoned as righteous. It's faith that saves kind of faith that grew. This is great faith. So I ask you, again, measure yourself. Measure yourself to see if you are walking in this way. Are you walking in the kind of faith that believes God and ever lives in light of his presence? Are you walking in the kind of faith that against all odds you still believe the truth even when every earthly circumstance makes it seem to be impossible? And do you believe God even uh, when the impossibilities are before you, you remain steady in belief? And do you persevere in that kind of faith? Do you have a persevering faith that's steady, growing, responsive, and unshakable that goes through season after season And do you have a faith that's looking for God's affirmation or man's? We desire to operate in such a way that we have the same faith that Abraham demonstrated. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this marvelous example in Abraham. We are encouraged because we see that it rests not in man's wisdom, man's power, but it rests in you. We are strengthened by your promises. We're strengthened by your work. We're strengthened by your testimonies. We're strengthened by a knowledge of you. Times we do feel like Peter, where we get our eyes off of you and we drift and sink and fall away. But we rejoice that just like Peter, you pick us up and lift us out. You strengthen us and walk alongside of us. We rejoice in your marvelous work Because what is demonstrated is the riches of your power to save. And so we ask as a result of seeing this that we would respond 
and exercising true faith and that we would grow in our faith and mature and that we would encourage one another that when we lose hope, when we doubt, we turn back to your rich promises. May they carry us through because we do not desire to show you our good works. We desire to see your good work on display in us. So thank you for this marvelous work of grace that you've started. We ask continue to, to sanctify us and demonstrate the riches of your power on display through us as we grow in faith. It's in your name we pray. Amen.